Well, we have been in this series for something more. I want to entertain a question for you. Could there be one last thing that we have not addressed as yet? And it is. In fact, I want to share with you today that if you're lacking joy in your life, it may just be because you're lacking mission in your life. Uh, we've been in a, this series of messages, and I closed this series down, but also looking forward to the Global Impact Conference that we're going to have about missions beginning Wednesday night. Now, a lot of you have never been a part of that before, and I'm telling you, it's going to be the event of the year. We're going to meet over here at, at, the, at the hangar, right back here in the back, and we're going to have tables set up. You're going to have a dinner, and then the missionaries, 30 missionary families are going to be there on Wednesday night. They're going to be marching down the middle, the center aisle, where I have a chance to appreciate them, clap for them, and then hear about them, and then hear from a great speaker, Ted Trailer, who uh, pastors one of the largest churches in the Panhandle. He's been a friend of mine for a long, long time, and I, I'd rather, I just soon hear him preach than anybody else. I mean, he's, he's really good. In fact, I shared with you a story a few weeks ago about three of his deacons going up to his home in Alabama and getting some water out of a creek that where he used to pray near that creek and really get close to God and brought it back to him as he was going through a hard time. Same guy. He's going to be here on Wednesday night to deliver the message. But this morning, as we review just a little bit, we said that John 14, 12, Jesus was saying to us, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. And we think about greater works as being leading people to Jesus Christ. And that's part of it. <clears throat> but part of that greater work is what's going on inside of you. And the Bible says the very moment that we receive Christ, we become a branch. Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. And it's like the, the Holy Spirit is the sap that runs through the vine onto the branches to bear the fruit. What's the fruit on the inside? Fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, self-control. Everybody wants that, that stuff in their life. All of us do. And so the very moment that we receive Christ, that begins to grow out in our life. And it begins to grow. The, the power on the inside, the fruit on the inside, will help you produce the power and the fruit on the outside as we do these greater works. As we're looking at this, we said that being on mission, being on mission is what Jesus was all about. Now, what is mission? Well, it's sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to every person on the earth. Now, the problem is about 1.3 billion people have never heard the good news. That's not news to them at all. They've never heard the gospel of Christ. I know that missions and evangelism could sort of come under a little bit of criticism over the years because people say, well, why would we go in to a country where the people are perfectly happy and take our gospel there and our way of life and proselytize them? Well, are they all that happy? Are they okay? Are they well off? Well, let's look at that here in just a moment because if we open to John chapter 17, let me just set up the, the story for you a little bit. Jesus has just been in the upper room participating and leading the Last Supper with the disciples. He says, often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. He said, the bread represents my body, the cup, the blood. He was about to die on the cross for their sins. And now they get up from the table. They begin to go to 
the place called a Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives. And at the Mount of Olives, Jesus was going to pray, and he says, Lord, Father in heaven, if you can take this cup from me, I pray that you will do that. But not my will, but your will be done. He prayed that three times. Now, as he's going there, they're, they're on a journey, and he's teaching them as he goes, and this is really the last teaching that he would have before the cross. And as he was teaching them, they were coming across the Kidron Valley, and the Kidron Valley was just slaughtered sheep from the day of the Passover, and they were all, the smell of death was all around them. It was in their nostrils as he was teaching them about the last things, about the power of the Holy Spirit in their life, and also... Uh, the things that he was going to do for them in heaven. And now he comes to chapter 17 in the last part of this discourse where he prays for them. Now, a lot of us think that the Lord's prayer is that our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But Jesus was asked by his disciples in that passage. He was asked by his disciples, said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so we did. So that's Jesus' model prayer. This is his prayer. The first five verses, we find Jesus praying for himself. So you see, there's nothing wrong with doing that. That's something you ought to do. Verses 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples that were right there in front of him. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for his future disciples, us. And so in the context of all this, he starts talking about and reiterates his mission in life. And so we want to look at three things this morning the power of mission, the purpose of mission, and then our opportunity at participating in missions. First, the power of it. Let me share with you that missionary, the word mission or missionary means one that is sent. A great illustration of this in our government is an ambassador. He's sent to another country to represent that country, but also not just to be there for them, but to to really illustrate how their country lives, to educate those around them. We are ambassadors for Christ, and the Bible says Jesus has sent us on mission. We represent him, and we represent a lifestyle of the people that are supposed to be going to heaven. Look with me in verse 13. And now I am coming to you, Jesus said, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So God is wanting you to have this fruit of the Spirit in your life, this joy. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them. He's talking now about his disciples that were right before him. Because they were not of the world, just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them away from temptation and from uh, devilish influences as well. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify or set them apart in the truth. For your word is truth. As you sent me, Jesus said, into the world. He says, so I have sent them into the world. As Jesus was sent, you and I are sent back out into the world. We're missionaries sent. And Jesus is saying to us, it is necessary that you do this, that you will have joy as I have had joy in my life. Even in Hebrews chapter 12, when the writer of Hebrews is writing back about the life of Jesus, he says this, looking to Jesus, the founder, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame as he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What has happened here? 
love and truth have come together to form a great passion in Jesus' life. He now is on a mission to come to this earth, to live 33 and a half years, to die on the cross. And the Bible says, even before he actually did that, up in heaven, he had joy in his heart because of it. Could it be that with everything else you say, that something's missing, something's missing from my life? It's just joy in your life because instead of being on mission, it's really our lives are a little bit wrapped up with us. Now, I I was uh, privileged to grow up and to go through college in the Jesus movement. And uh, God's spirit was really poured out. In fact, everybody was looking for something to live for back then. In fact, probably now as well. You didn't go up to a five, uh, eight-year-old kid and say, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? I mean, he would not say, well, I really want to sit around a desk all my life and push papers around. You know, nobody, nobody says that, right? No, when you're young... And when we were involved in that Jesus movement, everybody wanted to live for something. Somebody, oh, I'm going to go Peace Corps. I'm going I'm to do this. I'm, I'm going to go and represent my country. I'm going to go and, and protest this. They're all, somebody was going for a cause everywhere. Now, the only people in my generation that live with that kind of passion are Christians, and not many of them. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons is because simultaneously, almost like uh, two railroad tracks riding side by side, was a philosophy that was in our university system that is still prevalent today. And that philosophy is one of postmodernism. Postmodernism says that there's no absolute truth. Whatever's true for you at the time is true. Now, if your circumstances change, then your commitments change, of course, because there is no truth besides what you think about in your own mind. Well, that's caused us then to have our lives wrapped up around ourselves. In a day, it was, it used to be a cause greater than myself. It could be my government. It could be my country. It could be missions. It could be um, a responsibility to my community. It could be a responsibility to my family. Now it's more, and even back then in the 80s and 90s, it was, it was a, lot, a lot more like, okay, it's all about me. You know, it's my personal life, my personal fulfillment, my personal happiness. If anything gets in the way of my happiness, I got to get rid of it. If any commitment gets in the way of my happiness, instead of living with my decisions and living with my commitment, I change my commitment. And I'm justified in doing that because everybody knows that it's all about your happiness and not about your responsibility. So our greatest cause became ourselves, and there's no joy in that. There's just no joy in it at all. There's no, there's no love and truth coming together like a, like a reservoir, like, like something coming through your pipes in your house, and you've got the shower off, and suddenly you turn it off, and this stream of water through this little bitty hole comes through. Why? Because what's behind it is much, much bigger than what you're looking at. And that's the love and truth of God. It becomes so built up within you with the passion of God. And it comes a little bit at a time through this little bitty hole. And it just explodes in joy in your life. Could it be that the reason why we're not experiencing joy is that we just don't have the mission in life? And really, part of the joy of life is community. We know that. People are seeking community everywhere they go. Why? Why doesn't it just come natural? Why are people looking for a cause? And sometimes it's not even a, oh, it's, it's not even a true cause. Because when I'm asking, if, if my life revolves around 
me and my happiness, then what I eventually have to ask you to do is come around me and help me and support me in community for my happiness. And nobody's going to do that. Because on the other hand, they're wanting you to come and be in community with them to support their happiness. And we continually collide. No real joy in it. And Jesus said, if you're going to have joy, you've got to be on mission. You've got to be part of something bigger than yourself. You've got to have a passion and know that it's the truth of what you're going for to have the joy in your life. So let's look a little bit narrow, narrower version of mission and talk about the mission of God. Because I can't think of anything I could be more involved in as a believer in Christ than the mission of God and what God wants to do in people's lives. I want you to notice in this passage, it's just kind of interesting how Jesus really sets us up here uh, as far as the world is concerned. He says in verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. What's he talking about here? He's talking about a salvation experience. He says, you were in the world, you were in the way of the culture, you went the way of the world, but I've called you out of the world and saved you. The Holy Spirit lives within you. But then notice in verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Jesus says, look, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to die on the cross, be resurrected, ascend up into heaven, but these people I'm leaving in the world. So I'm, I'm called out of the world, but I'm still living in it. Then he says in verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So I'm called out of the world. I'm still in the world, but I'm not part of the world. And then finally, he says, as you sent me into the world, verse 18, so I have sent them into the world. So I'm called out of the world for salvation. I'm still in the world, at least for the time being, until I die, until Jesus comes back again, one of the two. I'm still in the world, but I'm not of that culture. I'm, I'm different. I'm set apart, as the Bible says, I think, in verse 17. I'm set apart for that. But now I'm sent back into the world with a message and a mission in life. Why does God send us back into the world? Because the world's broken. It's just broken. Broken homes, broken lives, broken hearts. A brokenness in, our, in, in the way we live, in our government, sometimes our economy. The whole world is just broken. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. And because of that sin in our life, it breaks us. It, it's, it's a broken relationship with God, therefore broken relationships around us, and a broken relationship even within our own heart. So what's the cure for that? Jesus came, and he died on the cross for our sins. You say, well, that's really interesting. That's, that's a good way. I mean, that's kind of one of the ways. Now, I, I'm going to maybe cause you to think differently here for just a moment. I'm going to challenge your thinking for just a moment. Because one of the biggest obje objections to Christianity is uh, John 14, 6. In the same verses where he promises that he's going to be going away and preparing a place for us in heaven, Thomas asked, how do we know the way? And Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You say, well, you know, that's really unacceptable. That is so narrow. That, that, that is so bigoted to think the rest of the religions in the world are, are not any good, and you've got the only truth. Is that what you're saying, Pastor? You see, what we think about, again, is, is we think about life having a lot of doors just like this building. 
There's just doors everywhere, and there's just a lot of ways to get to heaven, and Jesus is just one of the ways. And Jesus said, no, 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 I am the door. Because if your sin is, you're cut off from God. Now, let me give you this illustration. I, you know, sometimes when you're sharing Christ with someone, you know, God will reveal some, some stuff to you you never thought of before, like stories and illustrations. And you think, wow, God, that was just great, you know. Holy Spirit led on that one. And uh, I was talking to someone about this whole idea of Jesus being on the way to heaven. And so I started off the story, and I was kind of going to go to an example, go one direction, and I ended up going another direction. And here's the story. Suppose uh, there was a plague, and uh, it was going to destroy the entire world. And the government came to your home and said, look, we've been looking for someone of pure blood, certain DNA, certain blood type, in order to make a serum out of it to cure the rest of the world. And we found it. Oh, yeah? Great, great. I'm not going to die. That's great. He said, it's your son, your five-year-old son. So you're going to have to take his blood. And immediately, you kind of get a little proud about that. You know, hey, wow, my son's going to save the world. How much blood do you need? I said, all of it. Wait a minute. You, my son's going to have to die for everybody else to be saved. That's exactly right. It's the only way. That's it. He's devastated. He, he said, I'm going to have to think about this. So they come back the next day, and he says, look, before I make this decision, I want to ask you one last time. Is this absolutely, positively the only way and immediately he sees a pause. They look at one another, and he says, oh, something's wrong. And he looks at one of them and says, I know you want to tell me something. He says, yeah, I do. He said, look, Switzerland, in Switzerland, they have some doctors, and they believe they found a, a serum for this. And in Africa, they're making one out of a plant. But we need an American way. We need to get out in front of this. And our pharmaceutical company can really manufacture this, and we can get America right there on, on, the, on, the, uh, on the front list of things, and we're going we're gonna to have the best serum out of your, uh, your son. But it, it's going to be one of the serums. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that you want me to give up my son's life so America can have their own version of the serum, and your pharmaceutical company can make millions of dollars? Yeah, what do you think? Well, you'd be saying, get out of my house. You must be out of your mind. How barbaric do you think I am with any amount of money you might offer me to give my son's life just so your pharmaceutical company can have what you think would be the best way to cure the plague? You wouldn't do that. There's not a person here that would do that. So why would you expect God to do that? Why would you expect God to say, look, there's a lot of ways to heaven. There's the, the Buddhist way and the Hindu way and this way and that way and the Muslim way and, 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 and the atheist way. There's just a lot of doors. Hey, just come one, come all. Just be kind of a good person. And that's it. Oh, by the way, I, I want another way to heaven. So I'm going to send my only son to die on the cross, a Roman cross, to bleed to death for the rest of the world in order just to have another way. How barbaric would a God like that be? You wouldn't do it, and God wouldn't do it. You say, yeah, but what about those who have never heard? I was asked that question. In fact, I've been asked that question lots, lots of times. The first time I was asked that question, I was sharing Christ with this guy back at um, university where I went, back when I was about maybe 20 years old. And um, I was sharing Christ. This other guy was kind of listening in, you know. 
And this guy I was sharing with, my friend kind of left the room. This other guy said, I wanna, I'm interested in this. I want to ask you some questions. He began to fire him off. He was, he was really interested. But he came up with one question I couldn't answer. He said, what about those? He used the illustration of Africa. I guess everybody uses that one. Um, in Africa, they never heard the gospel. And I said, I don't know. I, I guess they'll be automatically saved. I don't know. I guess they're not accountable. He said, well, that wouldn't make sense. I said, yeah, you're right. It wouldn't make sense. And so I went and asked my pastor if he could meet with us, and we asked him that question. And he, Bill Ricketts came up with a great answer, of course, the answer. And that is that there's general revelation. The Bible says in Romans 1 that everybody has the knowledge of God in their heart. You don't have to convince a six-year-old there's a God. It's in their heart. But that's general revelation. Then you have to have specific revelation where the story of Jesus is told, the gospel message of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, and being resurrected on the third day, and we must receive him into our heart. That's specific revelation, and not everybody has that. But in a story in Acts, it tells about this uh, Ethiopian guy who was really wondering about the gospel. He's trying to read about it in the Old Testament. God took a fellow by the name of Philip, took him out of a, a big, huge meeting in Samaria where hundreds were getting saved, and he put him out in the middle of the desert just to meet this one guy. And he shared the gospel with him. In this case, the man received Christ. But he said, if someone desires more than the general revelation, God will send it to them. But he said, of course, then they'll have to make up their own decision. But 1.3 billion people just haven't heard. What about them? Well, okay, if they're already saved, they're going to go to heaven no matter what, then wouldn't it be bad for us to send missionaries there? After all, once we sent missionaries there and they heard the gospel, most of them would not leave their religion that they've grown up with all their life to automatically follow Jesus. I'd say the majority anyway. And so what we'd be doing is sentencing the rest of them to hell. We'd be sentencing the rest of them to be lost. They weren't lost before, but now that we've sent the missionary, they would be lost. 1.3 billion it's a lot of people. It's almost, well, it's a bigger number than I can get my, my mind around of those who have never heard the gospel. So why? Why should we go? Because we have the only message that will save, and the love of God compels us to go. I was in India back several years ago. They have 30,000 gods and growing. The average person, if we have maybe some pictures, guys, to throw up there, I'd appreciate it. They make an average of a dollar and a quarter a day. A buck and a quarter. Back when I was there, there were people all over the streets and fry, they had little frying pans and they fried bread, and that's the only thing they had to live on. No happiness there. Disease and poverty everywhere you go. I've seen this in different countries in the third world countries. And what about communism? Aren't they happy without us interfering? Communism that has enslaved millions and millions upon millions of people. We have the message, and the Bible says they're lost, and we need to go. So what do we do in our participation? Verse uh, 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself. I set myself, I sanctify them in the truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, us. That's us that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us so that the world 
may believe that you have sent me. Goes on to talk about his glory. You and I have been sent with this message. What can we do? Missions involves joy. And being on mission brings you joy because you put your stuff into it. Your time, your things, your, your life sometimes, yourself. So what do we do? First of all, we need to pray. If you ask the typical missionary, what do, what does they, what do they need more than anything else? Well, they're in spiritual warfare all the time where they are. They need your prayers. Another thing we can do is go. We can go. We've had 132 people called in full-time Christian service, and most of them would come back and say it was a short-term mission trip that I went on. You see, it's one thing to hear about a heart attack. It's another thing to have it. I felt like when I was in India and Peru and other places, I was in the pain. I was involved in the pain. Nothing changes your life, and nothing helps you to see what missions is all about. You can see pictures, you can watch films, you can hear missionary stories, but when you go, it's a life-changing experience. There are trips in, uh, located in your bulletin. There's a card there. If you flip it over, you'll see the different trips we hope to take during the coming year. We're going to have a Global Impact Conference on Wednesday, and then uh, particularly on, on Sunday morning and Sunday night of next week. Here's some great speakers, some great interviews. It's going to be a great time. But we're going to ask you if you want to think about and pray about going. But then we need to give. You see, there's some things that, some places I, I can't go. I just can't go. We're, we're going to be partnering with Compassion International. And when we, when we do that, we're going to be looking at starting a, planting a church for them that they can not only have a church in that area or they, this, this Haitian people could have a church in their area, won't belong to Compassion International. But Compassion comes in and ministers to the children in their area. I can't do that. I, I'm not gifted to do that. I'm not in Haiti. I don't live in Haiti. But I can partner with Compassion International to do that. We're going to have a program to secure our schools, big golf tournament. Well, I can't do that on my own. So we're calling partners in from the rest of the community in order to do that. We need partnerships. In order to do that, we've got to not only get involved, but we need to give as well. Now, I know that in a service like this, we have some who are thinking, here we go, talking about money. Again, if you want something free, you can forget about your joy. Throw it out the window. You'll always be wanting something more of the world on the worldly side, and the world is never enough. Like the song goes, you know, in that movie, never enough. It's just never enough. Getting involved in joy means getting involved in my time, my energy, and yes, my money as well. Now, I know that in this church, we, talk, we teach uh, tithing, and somebody says, well, okay, pastor, if, if that's what you want me to do, okay, I'll, I'll pray about that. See, I give 10% to the Lord, a tithe. Uh, that's a scriptural thing to do. And so what I'm going to do now is give 2% of that tithe to missions and give 8% to the general budget of the church. And pretty soon then you're, you're meeting this missionary and you think, oh, he needs help personally. I'll give 2%. Now I'm down to 6% in the church. And that's part of what's happened. Part of the reason why 
We haven't been able to do a global impact conference. It's just that. All of a sudden, all the money bleeds out. We, we can't, we've got to pay the bills. We've got to pay for the air conditioning. How many of you like air conditioning? I hope you do. Man, it's, it's hot out there right now. We have to pay salaries here. We have to have a base of support so we can do partner with other missions. And so that's not the answer to Rob Peter to pay Paul. The Bible does say, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And so we are stewards. That is, we're managers of God's possessions. God gives us a stewardship. He gives us a family. He gives us time. He gives us physical capabilities, mental capabilities. He gives us money as well. It's all a stewardship before God. When I stand before God one day as a believer and give an account of my life, it'll be based upon what he has given me to do with. It'll be based on my stewardship. And there's no question the Bible teaches tithing. It says, bring all the tithe into the storehouse. There may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I open up the windows of heaven for you and pour out a blessing for you, until it overflows. Now, you may be struggling in the whole giving area because you feel like you just can't afford to do it. I've never met anybody afford, could afford to tithe. I started tithing. My wife started tithing before we met. We taught to do that. I started tithing back in college. We got married, went off to seminary. She had a full-time job. I had a part-time job. I was going to school. We decided to give 11% that year, and we, we would grow. When we got out of school, we'd grow until we get 15 you see, tithing is the floor. It's a good place to start, not a good place to stop. And what we're talking here about is generosity. Now, I know some of you don't tithe, and so I'm, I'm just saying to you, we'll talk about that at another time, but we're going to ask you to give to missions over and above your normal giving. Instead of robbing Peter to pay Paul, over and above being generous and asking God to bless it. Listen, we, we've never done without. God's blessed us. Because God has moved us to give. Uh, I, when I was in India, I was, um, I was going along with this missionary, and she said to me, Don't, you can't preach here, you know. She said, I'd love for you to preach, but you are, um, you're, you're an American coming in from a, a foreign country, and they will kick you out, and they'll kick me out as a missionary if they, if they know about it. So please don't, don't do that. And I said, okay, I'm good, I'm good. Well, whatever you say. And so we were in this uh, slum area. And talking about slums, there's nothing in America like this, nothing. I, I mean, this is third world. I, I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anything like it since. Just little tent after tent after tent, just put up any way they could. Cows actually tied to a stake in order to get milk. I go into this little place, and for you and I, it would be a two-person tent. Okay, okay, maybe a little bit bigger than that, maybe a, a four or five person tent. And it was just walls going up with a with a, a canvas roof, and you could cram. We crammed about twenty five people in that room, and we, man, we were just like this. And and Rod Gilbert, who will be with us next week, said to me, his national pastor, Indian pastor, said, "We're going to have church." And I thought, "Oh, good, good. I'm going to see how you know this church operates." You know. He says, and you're preaching. All right, okay. And I look over to the missionary, okay, go, like, go ahead. And he said, well, no music at all. We're just going to let you preach. So I preached. Fifteen minutes later, five people received Christ. 
And they have a custom afterwards, that the, uh, after church, that the, uh, the people will bring their kids by, and you lay your hands on their head and you pray for them. And during this time, three ladies in that line gave me an offering. And I told Ron, I said, I can't take this. First one came by, I said, I can't take it. I mean, they live on a dollar and a quarter. They, they live on just enough to buy uh, bread to fry for their kids and for themselves. No place to live. And he says, no, they, they want to participate in the ministry. It's important to them. If you turn it down, you'll really insult them. By the end of the three offerings, that's 17 rupees. And I said, how much is that? And he said, about a dollar and a quarter. They gave out the abundance of their heart. And I'm wondering why God, with all of our outsourcing, with all the things that is come, going India's way right now, and the fact that Rod, when I first went there, had 100 leaders that I taught. Now he baptized 70,000 people last year. One year. And you wonder about the generosity and I can tell you, there's joy there. In their services, there's joy because they're involved on mission. They have a cause worth living for and worth dying for. As I close today, I just want to share one story with you that's just important to me. Um, Mark Rutland, who pastored Calvary Assembly years ago, before that, he was actually in Atlanta doing some ministry. And he was on radio every day. And I used to love listening to him. And every day at lunch, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd put it on and he had a 15-minute program. And he was talking about being on the mission field and just coming back from this African mission trip. And he would be going from village to village and they'd have these big outdoor meetings. He said he was just exhausted. He couldn't stand himself. He gets into the Jeep. They're about to go to the airport. And he could barely hold his eyes open. He was so tired. And this little old lady started running toward the, the car. Can I say little old lady? Okay. All right, this senior saint of the female persuasion, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, came running toward uh, the Jeep, and he rolls down the window, and he said he put, it, he put his arm for some reason kind of on the, I guess he thought maybe he was going to have a hard time hearing her with all the noise. And uh, she comes by, comes up to the Jeep, and she grabs him by the arm. He said, like a vice grip. And with a tear rolling down her cheek, she said, tell them we are here. And I've been telling people ever since then, they're there. And they need the same message that has saved us. With heads bowed and eyes closed, this morning, I ask you to open up your heart. Ask God to connect with you and see if this indeed is not the truth. And being the truth, you look at your life and you say, no, there's, there's not the joy there that I want there to be. I've lost the mission. I don't have the mission. I want to be part. I want to be on mission. And your first step is to receive Christ into your heart and life. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's the prayer of your heart today, you just want to give it all right now. Just give all your heart to Jesus. Pray this prayer with me. 
You can pray it silently if you'd like as I pray aloud. Lord God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for me. I open up my heart. Make yourself real to me today. Come into my life. Live in the inner core of my being. Help me to see life like you see it and live on mission. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.